when I was doing gallery duty one day, someone had painted uh, sheep blue. You don't paint sheep blue, this lady said. How ridiculous. And I'm thinking if you really read the artist's statement, you might find out why they're blue. But just because they weren't what they thought they should be, they dismissed yeah. it as being rubbish. Right. What a put right. down. Today's podcast is brought to you by Face Value, the Sharpened Artist Academy flagship course. Have you been frustrated trying to draw portraits in colored pencil? Do you want to draw people confidently and accurately, but don't know where to start? If so, then Face Value, the ultimate colored pencil portrait course, is the right course for you. This course will teach you how to draw portraits in colored pencil with step-by-step -step instruction. Follow along from start to finish and you'll see a transformation in your drawing skills as you master each facial feature. The Face Value course teaches you how to draw portraits from beginning to end with bite-sized exercises and live interaction to help keep you accountable. The enrollment period for the pre-sale of this course begins this coming Thursday, April 15th, and it will be capped at 20 students. The Color Pencil Podcast is brought to you by UART Premium Sanded Paper. UART Sanded Paper is the only sanded paper on the market today to offer seven different grades to choose from. Designed for pastel, colored pencil, and charcoal artists who need a consistent surface that doesn't compromise or damage wet media. UART's sanded paper readily accepts wet media without compromising that surface. You can add layer upon layer with ease correct mistakes as needed, and create exactly what you want thanks to this unique textured surface. You can add fixative between layers to keep on layering without affecting your work underneath. So give UART a try and experience the UART difference. And we thank UART Premium Santa Paper for their support of the Color Pencil Podcast. Have you heard about the new colored pencil conversion and comparison charts? They include the brand new Luminance colored pencils. These charts are an invaluable resource for anyone who works in colored pencil. They allow you to compare colors between different brands, see which colors have been light fast tested by each brand, compare the color of different surfaces, and so much more. Missing a certain red from one pencil brand? Just use a chart to find an alternative. This is a 62-page chart available from KarenHoleArt.com. So to get the booklet at 20% off, go to the show notes for the link or just use SharpArt20 at checkout. Welcome to Sharpened Artist, a colored pencil podcast. Weekly discussions in and around this medium that we love so much. Hey there, welcome back to the show. My name is John Middick of SharpenedArtist.com. This is the Sharpened Artist Colored Pencil Podcast. I'm so excited to welcome my guest today for the show. I'm interviewing Richard Klikotchik. Richard, did I get that right? You Close did enough. very well done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I only practiced like 20 minutes right before the show. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Richard, welcome to the show. So glad to have you on here. Thanks, mate. Good to be here. Awesome. All right. So let's, you know, every artist uh, has an origin story. Uh, we talk about on here how you got started in colored pencil or in art in general. So I'd like to hear yours. What got you started? I think it goes back to when I was eight years old, sitting on my father's lap, watching him draw 
matchbox toys with graphite pencils. And I was always amazed how accurate he was. And I know when you're a child, anything that looks reasonably uh, photographic or a, a duplicate of what you're looking at in 3D, you know, marvels the mind. But I could see that my father was extremely skilled. And it gave me the confidence, I think, to draw. But oddly enough, I never started drawing with pencils. I started drawing with biros, what we call um, pens, when I was in, ooh, must have been 10 years old. I just liked them because they were immediate. Even though I made mistakes, it didn't worry me. In fact, I taught myself later on to draw without making too many mistakes. And if I did, I taught myself how to cover them up. And I learned that the more you drew in detail, the less your mistakes were obvious. So the less detail, the more easy the mistakes are to pick up. So that gave me a bit of confidence. And I went into felt pen. And then I went through a, a period in my teens where I started drawing out through my window, just looking at houses and buildings and the distance from my place up to what I lived in Hobart as a child in Tasmania, the capital of Tasmania. And I looked through my window of my bedroom up to the mountain and I'd try and draw everything I saw. And I sort of self-taught myself perspective. Then I went to high school and my art teacher then gave me the confidence. In fact, he gave me so much confidence I became an art teacher because of him. I ended oh. up in art school when I was 18. Oh, and I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, he was, he was my uh, Jeff Page, who was my guiding light to be an art teacher. He's the only art teacher I n- ever had who wore a suit to school and never, ever got paint on it. I could never wow. figure that out. He, and he never wore a smock. He was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. I wish I could do that. But anyway, I went to art school. <laughs> And I still had this love of drawing. Even though I graduated as a sculptor painter, I still had this urge to draw. But the urge to draw was sort of tempered when I started teaching because full-time teaching meant just that, full-time teaching. And I was usually stuffed at the end of the day and I couldn't do my artwork. But it was about four years later that I started to take my art seriously. And that was 1976. I started painting. Okay, so you were in your early 20s, though? Yes, I was about 25 then when I had my first piece in a professional gallery. And I always remember that first piece of work, a landscape, because I put it in at half past nine in the morning, the gallery, when the gallery opened, and I had it sold by 11 o'clock. That was my first piece, my first day. Yeah, that sounded good, but it was, it was was a struggle after that. It was always, art is a struggle, but, but yeah. I, I enjoy my painting, and I moved through painting over the coming years. I went from oil painting to acrylic painting to soft pastels to oil pastels, and then I was getting sick of the mess, seriously, on mm. my fingers, and I picked up my pencils, and I bought myself a set of Derwent Cumberland pencils, the 72 okay. box, the tin, mm. and I just loved the fact that they were so immediate. You just and they're so little mess. They were so portable. You could take them anywhere. You could draw on a lot of different types of surfaces. And I, I chose various coloured papers. For some reason, I prefer coloured papers or coloured supports, as mm. we call them in the tray, mm-hmm. to over to white. Although I still do some white or work on white. I just like the fact I get a more painterly look. 
on coloured paper. Oh, and so I so I just played around with this for a little while, and I just I just started to feel so comfortable with them, and I think it, the fact is that coloured pencils in those days were very much the poor man's or poor person's art medium. Mm. Not many people put coloured pencil work out, and I thought I felt like David against Goliath. And yeah. I think to a state I still do here in, in Australia. Well, what time period were we talking about when you were using the Cumberland pencils? Uh, I started showing my work in 86. So I was in my mid-30s when I was okay. showing. It would be 86. And it was it was a time when I was tired of, of other medias and just saw this as being something in which I – I actually liked doing. I enjoyed picking up the pencils and playing around with them, and there was a lot of there was a lot to learn. And I was teaching art at the same time, so my teaching of art really sort of was enhanced by the fact that I was doing studio work, and I was starting mm. to share techniques with with my students. And when I taught in college, I went to college level, which here in Australia is grades eleven and twelve. I taught uh -huh. there for fifteen years. Oh wow. I, I gave um, the students back as much as they were giving me. It was a really nice sharing thing. And, and my my work started to take on more of a – I went from a stage of being interested in realism but coming from an abstract background. See, when I left art school, I was an abstract painter. And that okay. to me was, was something which I, I, I – it stuck with me over the years – to see things rather than look at them, I actually uh, interpret them how I felt about them. And okay. it resonated to me sort of it was history, there was emotional response, there was design, yeah. and besides colour and texture. So I was sort of heading down a path where I started to refine my work so that the older I got, the less I put into my work as far as detail goes. And I still find that really hard. It's... It's hard to say to yourself, "What should I take out? What do I leave in?" and not losing right. and not lose the integrity of what I'm looking at, my subject, or whatever I'm trying to do. So, some of my work is highly stylized, especially now that I'm older and, and have retired from full time teaching. Although I have been teaching adult workshops, but I find that the more I refine my work, the more difficult it is to refine it. But the more pleasing it is to me and satisfying to see what I've achieved with so little information on it. Very, very interesting. Okay, so I want to back up for just a moment then. And you were talking about that you started doing abstract. So you were an abstract artist and you were using all those mediums that we talked about earlier. You're painting with acrylics and oils and soft pastels and then oil pastels, all uh, pretty much within abstract subject area? To start off with, but I got seduced by the holy dollar, and the holy dollar means if you don't draw, in this case, what the market wants, you're not going to sell your work or you struggle. And that sort of overrode uh, everything I did for a few years. But I got a bit tired of it. It wasn't me. I, I've, I think art, at the bottom line of art is you must be yourself and you must be honest with your work. It's who you are. Don't try and be somebody else. Don't try and – I know people copy um, people to learn and I can understand that. 
But when you find who you are in your art, that's when you should take off and do the art which not only pleases you, but actually reflects your personality. Oh, I love that. So, okay, so you were do you were doing some realism then when you were selling your art a lot? Is that what I understand? Yeah, yes, yes. Okay. The, the more recognisable my work was, particularly in my home state of Tasmania, which is renowned for its clean green image and its its landscapes, and we have some okay. stunning landscapes here. And if you interpreted those. You're pretty well on a winner because people say, "Oh, I've been there. Oh, I like that." And uh, yeah, def- oh, you got the feeling for that, and they would, that right. they'd be very um, animated about what they saw as long as you right. portrayed it that way. Okay. So, were you uh, selling at uh, gallery at that time? I had yes, I had my first major show in 1982. Okay. I remember that, and then I started selling through galleries. I a sign, let's go back to, it wasn't, I suppose, until I did, I did show through a number of galleries, and I have for a number of years, and I have been on the books of several galleries, but I, of late, uh, and I'll continue this later on, but why I've changed now and I've just gone solo after so many years, uh, it's another story. But <clears throat> the the gallery scene is has been quite strong in Tasmania, although now with the economic situation and COVID situation, things right. have started to contract as well. And art's, art's gone in a totally different direction now than what it was, say, 10, 20 years ago. There was a golden period in art in Tasmania called the 1970s and probably the early 80s because we have a really vibrant and strong art community in Tasmania, which is supported by people who are local residents, but also a lot of visitors from interstate and from overseas. But a lot of interstate people do support the arts here and they're very strong. And in fact, I think after having worked and lived in Australia mainland for a number of years, our state has the strongest community arts commitment of anyone. And that's been mm-hmm. good. That's tied, tied us through, particularly through workshops and exhibitions. So there's always plenty mm-hmm. to see, but it's been the economic uh, influence that yeah. has sort of now dampened things down everywhere, even in Tasmania. Oh, okay. I got gotcha. you. Well, you said that you indicated that uh, you decided to go solo. So does that mean that you're only selling through your website or something like that? Or... No, webs. No, no I, I still show in galleries, but I'm I'm not. Okay. Um, I don't have a gallery contract anymore. I've decided oh, gotcha. to because the gallery. The, one of the reasons with all galleries and and galleries have got to make a living. I know that, but when you're paying a huge commission on your work on top of framing, as right. well as just creating it, at the end of the day. Sometimes a gallery makes more than you do from your work. Yeah, and, yeah. And I just thought it'd be a lot, a lot simpler in the way, and it, it, it's proved to be um, quite a, a worthwhile change in the end. I, I haven't got to do great um, stacks of work and have it framed sitting there in the gallery at once. I've got work at home. I've got work ready to frame if needed, and I have uh, work out in galleries now in a couple of galleries in the state. Which, when I moved, I just replace it. So there's no, there's no um, pressure anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So, what 
pencils then okay let's go back to uh maybe your mid-30s and uh, move forward from there and then were you um introduced to other colored pencils that you started to like later on um i'm guessing you're still not using the cumberland pencils from derwent right no but i still actually have some i have 40 sets of pencils in my collection 40 different brands okay you really like those pencils huh Oh, pencils good. Uh, I know from 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 the states, from the yeah. UK, from Europe. I've got pencils. I just found I started collecting pencils because I was curious. I uh, just like to see yeah, what yeah. what, and I started to go in things like color fastness, um, pigment quality, yeah, just size. Because now that I've turned seventy, I'm suffering from arthritis in my hands, uh, uh-huh. and I'm going through a pretty tough period at, at the moment. To the point there where I, I don't draw every day. I used to draw minimum five days a week when I retired. I've been retired for 15 years now. Oh, okay. And I re- I drew just about flat, and sometimes in the weekends. But uh, I found now I have to pace myself. And in, in doing that, I've found pencils which best suit my hands to hold. So there's the which ergonomic factor. Yeah. Well, well, Prismacolor is a very good pencil for me to hold in my hand. Prismacolor Premier. Yeah, premier, because I've used those. They were my second choice pencils. After Derwent, I moved Prismacolors. I'm okay. not sure why or how. I just read about it, I think, to be honest. I was looking at okay. something on the net. <clears throat> so I choose them. And I must, have had, I must have had a couple of thousand of those at one stage, literally, because <laughs> uh, I, I, I kept using – because I go through a lot of pencils very quickly. My style in those days – uh, result in, in going through several pencils a day, literally going through them and working them down to virtually where one could even hold them with a pencil extender. So that was good. But the best pencil for me for, for my condition is probably the Carandage Supra Color. Okay. That is, that is a, an, it's hexagonal. So it sits in yeah. my hand really well. And it also has the best covering pair of any pencil in the world. For its size, no, it's it very will cover creamy. huge yeah. areas, yeah. beautiful areas, and it's just, just I just indoor working it. Museum Aquarel is another one. Luminance I love, but I'm having a problem with the barrel because it's a very shiny barrel. Polychromos are good. I use those a lot as well. A lot of pencils are. Um, there's not a lot of difference in some of them, and and the newer one from Derwent, the Derwent Lightfast. Uh huh. That's another I like one. That one. Well, I've done I've done some testing for Derwent. I helped test with the uh, Pro Color and the Light Fast uh, over the last okay. couple of years as well, and uh-huh. I found those, particularly the Light Fast, to be a good pencil uh, to work with, just to, and just to hold. So it's to me yeah. at the moment it's a matter of holding, and I, I'm reducing the amount of brands I'm working with because it's physically stressful for me to hold hold the bigger pencils. Yeah. I could see, I I can understand what you're talking about there. So, but it sounds like you, uh, you haven't met a pencil you don't like or that you wouldn't try. (laughs) Right. Am I right about that? Well, there's a few, uh, that's true to a point. There's a few pencils that I shy away from, but, but which are those? Well, Pro Color is one because it's just too hard and chalk. It's just too hard and chalky for me to draw with. I I have problems with that one. That's probably, and, that, very that hard would be that. Yeah. yeah, I had a few issues with color soft to start off with pencils, but uh, I worked. I worked through that and found the right support f- to draw with those on. They're quite a nice well, pencil. 
Okay, what, what is that support on, on, uh, uh, on that one? I'll start soft. off. I've done a lot of work over the years on what we call here Canson Pastel Board. Now, Canson, in their wisdom, have decided not to uh, produce it anymore, here in Australia anyway, or send it to Australia, and they've replaced it with Canson Framing Board. So you'd have it over there as Framing Board in America. It's a little bit harder, which is unfortunate. Uh, it, it just doesn't do the job. Colorsoft worked well on the Canson Metons paper, uh-huh. They were quite good on that. But I didn't take it any further because I found better pencils than those. Although I still mm-hmm. quite like them. They're in my they're there, one of the sets I use. But I find the also colour soft. That, yeah, right. the colour right. soft. But okay. having the, the oilier and the and the waxier pencils, that's one thing that Prismacolor do really well is that they the pencil itself lays down really nicely on any surface that you work with. However, mm-hmm. It's still the issue with breakages. That's been that has been a pain. I know for a lot of people, yeah. and for me particularly. Yeah, uh, that's just something we've got to deal with. But the thing I like well, about some of the pencils with Prismacolor, you have to fix them when you're finished. I use pencils where you don't have to fix them when you're finished. There's no need. Once they're done, that's it. There's nothing. You're talking about uh, wax bloom that you don't yeah. worry about wax bloom. Is that what wax you're talking bo- about? Wax bloom comes in Prismacolor. But, uh-huh. for example, with any of the Caran d'Ache pencils and with Polychromos, you just don't need to do anything once you're finished. Right, right. And I, lo- I love that. I just, because any time right. yeah. you put a spray on your surface, you will slightly dull the pencil that's on yeah. there. People varnish a lot. Varnishing, again, will make sh- your colours go a little bit deeper. So you shied away from Prismacolor Premier a little bit because you didn't want to have to try to get rid of the wax bloom and deal with that. Is that right? That was one of the reasons, and also the fixing at the Light end. Light fastness, I guess, and the breakage of quality. Light fastness isn't too bad with most of the Prismacolors, but when I found something yep. better, like the Caran d'Ache, like the Caran d'Ache rating on luminance is the highest of any pencil in the world, of their, of yep. their light fast rating. Right. And Supracolor's pretty close. Mm-hmm. And I've I've got work in my folders, which I can date back, say, when I've been living in the tropics in northern Australia four, four years ago or more. Pull them out of the folder now. They look like they were done yesterday. Mm. They, just, they're, they're they're nice. they look sparkling. Yeah. They look, have that sparkle to them. Right, right. Very, very cool. Okay, let's talk about paper for a moment then. What kind of surfaces do you prefer other than the Canson pastel board? I've used the Canson Metons pastel paper. I haven't gone into the, the gritty surfaces that, that that seems very popular. I didn't like Stonehenge. I tried that. <laughs> a lot of people like Stonehenge paper. But yeah. for, for my style, it just didn't suit. I have worked I've, lately, last year or two, I've started working on heavyweight watercolour paper, cold-pressed. I won't use okay. the smooth. I like a little bit of texture in my work. Okay. Again, for that. Painterly look versus the what I call the illustrative look that you get on the smooth surfaces. I find some of them a little bit too flat on the on the smooth paper. That's the hot press paper. So I've gone to cut, but I still find at the end of the day a coloured support gives me more oomph with my work than I get on white paper. Any white paper at all, to be honest. So <clears throat> unfortunately, Canson's decision. 
to cut the pastel board out has meant I have to look elsewhere. Once my stocks run out, I am well stocked for another year or so, but when my stocks run out, I have to find an alternative. So I'm looking for an alternative at the moment, something with a little bit of boomf in it, um, preferably (laughs) coloured. And, of course, now the way things are with COVID, trying to get imported stuff from overseas is really difficult. It is. So yeah. I, I've just got to go with what we've got. <laughs> <laughs> right. <clears throat> you have to. You have to slow the work down a little bit. Make that. Paper I have. Last. I have. I have slowed the work down a little bit. I'm, I'm getting older, so I've got big garden. So I look after that garden helps too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! This is so fun. So all right, guys, if you haven't checked out Richard's site, go over to the show notes, and you'll be able to do that. Uh, so I'm talking to Richard today, and you know, the, if you're used to looking at highly detailed uh, representational work, some of you like the terms photorealism, some of you like the terms hyperrealism and things like that, then I want you to think in the exact opposite direction. Um, so you alluded to this, you talked about it a little bit, Richard, where it's difficult to figure out how <coughs> to leave details out and i'm real interested in that like how how do you decide like okay i'm just going to capture the essence of this a landscape let's say right and i'm going to boil this down to it's just bare essence of what it is and to me when i'm looking at your work i'm i'm noticing more than anything um color color seems to be a big part of the work very clear separations in uh the edges where one color begins another one uh, uh begin as uh, ends so what's i mean what's going on then <clears throat> in your mind like when you're looking at a landscape and you're thinking i mean is that the way it works are, are you being inspired by something you're looking at and then you're translating that or is it the other way around well, there's different stages. For example, when I was in the tropics, the biggest thing to affect my work wasn't actually what I saw, it's what I felt. And I felt heat and I felt sweat and I had <laughs> felt this warmth because working in the rainforest up there is, is another thing compared to the Tasmanian temperate forest, I can tell you. Uh-huh. And it, it, I felt warm and, and I just thought I've got to use colours I've got to pick the colours out in the landscape, which give make me feel warm. It doesn't matter if it's a if it's even a deeper colour, but I've got to get uh, them against each other so they bounce off each other to give me that reaction of yeah. being. For example, I'm having a show in October at a gallery in in Scottsdale in in uh, northeast Tasmania, which uh-huh. is called Floating, and it's a series of works on objects floating down streams. Half sunken, sinking down, moving, breaking up, bit of mm-hmm. decay, a lot of, a lot of, um, autumn, what you call fall, um, experiences that I've had. And that, that came about by looking at the rapid decay in tropical rainforests oh. and then comparing that with the slower decay in the temperate rainforests in Tasmania. Mm. So that was one way of looking at it. And another way was, when I was at New, in living in New South Wales at Port Macquarie, 
looking at the landscapes there, a lot of them were, particularly in the agricultural areas, very rural, of course, very simple, lots of mm. shades of green, certain amount mm. of trees. Yeah. And I got that feeling of that spatial feeling, like I, I just stood there and there wasn't a lot to see, but I felt so exhilarated by the fresh air and the open spaces. And we've got an area in Tasmania called the Midlands, and the Midlands goes straight down the middle of Tasmania. And for most of it, it's all pastoral slash dry, uh, irrigated, semi-irrigated. Uh, yeah. Part Most of the year, it's straw-coloured. And when it rains, it goes green. It goes really green and for about three or four weeks. And then it goes back to straw again, except the parts are being irrigated. So you've got these bright green strips. You've got these yellow ochre through to what you'd probably call eggshell in prismacolor colour mm-hmm, or even mm-hmm. sand colour. And then it changes again with the seasons. And that really inspires me to say, right, what are the main colours I see there? What is the overriding feeling of colours? And so often we'll go back to sand and eggshell with a a particular green, maybe olive for the Mm -hmm. the, uh, trees. And that's it. And that's all that's needed. And the amount of times that people said, oh, that's exactly how I see the Midlands. And I've said, I've done that with, say, five or six colours as opposed to realism, I could use 30 or 40. But I've got the feeling. And I I think people actually go for more than they realise, they go for the feeling of what they've seen. Colour will actually remind you of what you saw rather than specific objects. It's just that overriding glimpse that we get. We're going past in the car. We're not picking out individual trees. We're just picking out a whole panorama as we go past. And the main thing that comes out to us will either be colour or shape. Yeah. Either two. But the colour of the shape is more important than the shape itself because that's what we pick up first in our eyes. Yeah. We'll see a colour before we see anything else. So that's right. what I've tried to do. So when I've come back from, from living in Cairns, for example, and the drawings I've done from there, I got that feeling straight away from the heat of the colours more than the objects themselves. So it's that memory. Mm. It's a memory thing with me going. Mm. So no matter where I go, it, it's how I felt about the place. I shut my eyes and I think about it. Mm-hmm. And then the first thing that comes to mind is a colour, then a shape. And that's mm. how I see my work in that order. Okay. So when you're, when you're drawing and making these artworks, you're using your imagination. Is that right? A lot of times? I use, I, I have a, a terrible lot of photographs. Um, I have thousands, and I make photo files up. I photograph skies. I photograph different landscapes, okay. macro views. So I keep folders. But you're right. The first thing I go back to is my memory, and imagination can only be fired or fueled by what you remember. You have to experience something to be able to imagine it. I can't draw a dragon for you if I've never seen one or never never looked in a book. Or, right. for example, people go to a zoo and see an elephant, that's fine, but if they copy an elephant out of a book, it's only what they've seen. They, they can't imagine because elephants have a smell, they have a texture, they have a way yeah. they walk around. Even in a zoo, I've seen them out yeah. in the open zoos and things like that, which to me is no comparison with the real thing. So when I visited a place like Uluru in, in Central Australia, 
to walk around that sacred site and then come back and draw it as I was there at sunrise in the morning. And you think Central Australia, oh, I'd be nice and warm. Absolutely freezing, absolutely freezing. <laughs> we're, we're even colder than Tasmania. And then I, then I experienced the sunset as well. So I went from the other extreme. So I've drawn both, but I had to be there. It's no point me seeing it on video. It's no point me seeing it in a book. I actually had to be there and experience what it was like. And I put myself standing in that picture as I was doing it. And that helped uh, me yeah. be there. And that's, and, and then with a limited palette, it didn't matter. I yeah. captured the moment. That was what yeah. I thought anyway. Well, I love that because your reference material videos, pictures or whatever is a reminder of the emotion, a reminder of that physical experience then that you had and you're capturing that in your work. I love that. Mm. It's so a, living, talk, a, a huh? living souvenir, if you like, of yeah, that place. Yeah. It's, it's always there to refer to. You know, you, I can always go back and I can look at the videos I've taken yeah, or the shots that I've taken, the prints that I've done, yeah. and I can then, after a few minutes, I'm there. I'm in the zone. But ah, it's, I, yeah. I don't go and take a photo and say, oh, I think I'll copy that today. Right. Because I have, I have a, I don't like that. I'm thinking art is not about copying something, which it's about you taking an interpretation. The way you see it is more important than just producing it for its sake. You've got to be part of it. And I always ask people when they do a drawing, first thing you should ask yourself, why am I doing it? Why right. am I doing that drawing? What's the reason behind doing that drawing? And then you have more ownership. If you have, if you have ownership of what you're drawing, you'll find that more of you will come through that drawing in the end than it would be if you just did it for the, something to do. Well, let me ask the question. Why are you doing your drawings? I have the to, landscapes. Let's talk about the landscapes. I, for, yeah. what was I, that? I have to, I, I, I have to do it. That's, the, there's something in me that says I have, have to, to do it. I, yeah, <laughs> right. it's, it's, I'm probably uh, OCD art. Uh, <laughs> I, I, and, and I suppose, no, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm quite proud of that. I, I just, you know, I could be in sitting around whittling on the, on the veranda at the end of the day, but I have this drive to do it. And then I go off in tangents. I've got a, a really interesting tangent at the moment. I'm, I study things. I love research. Uh -huh. Research to me is what is sometimes more important than actually doing art itself. And that sounds really weird, but. Doing something like that, you immerse yourself in, I, for example, I, when I'm doing a landscapes, I actually go back 100, 200 years or more, read about and look at old photos where I can, study the landscape I'm doing, what it was like all those years ago, why it was there, why it's there in the first place. Fascinating. Yeah. And that makes me, again, I feel part of, you know, I've gone up and, you know, I've hugged a few trees occasionally and I've walked forests. And then I've gone back and read stories about the forest and the way they were first explored, <clears throat> things like mm -hmm. that, just just to get a handle on what I'm actually looking at. And it's I think it's a respect thing. I like to respect what I'm actually looking at rather than saying, oh, there's a nice tree, I'll go and draw it. Why is that mm -hmm. tree there? Uh, we, have, we have a series of trees planted in Tasmania from 1930. Which said 1935 to 1939, and it was a series of trees from the north of the state to the south, from the city of Hobart, which is the capital in the south, to the major city in the north where I live is Launceston. And to celebrate the pioneers who came to Tasmania, 
they planted some, something like 10,000 trees. They're not all there now, of course, but these are trees which are grown from seed from all over the world. Mm. And they're planted. There are still some left. And I've been using, and I sent one of those to you, one of those images called Those Trees. And there are eight cypress trees up on this particular hill, which very few people in Tasmania actually know why they're there. I know why they're there. And I, I know love all about this. Yeah, I know all about the planting of the trees. I know the lady whose grandfather grew and planted the trees. Oh, wow. So I've interviewed her just to get a hand on what I'm actually looking at. And that was the sort of thing where I get it gets personal for me after a while. Yeah. Where I do and and I think that's a good thing yeah. because I'm putting down some some foundations, some roots into what I'm doing. It's just not flippant. It's yeah. it's dead serious. I enjoy doing it and I and I, I don't get I don't get overly possessive about it. It's just that I want to tie on, I want to get a handle on what I'm actually looking at in the first place. Then I know why I'm looking at it mm -hmm. in that order. Mm, that's fascinating. So you guys have got to see this on those trees. We've got five. You've got five different trees there in this uh, set of, on, uh, and that's one piece artwork. of work. Yeah, it's a five panel. Very, very cool. All right, that that is that is fascinating. I I love that so much. I mean, you do get a sense of uh, the color, and um, and you get a sense of those trees for sure. I mean, that's pretty obvious that that's what the piece is about but shape and color you talked a lot about that um but i see some pretty harsh shadows in there so how much do you think about value then you didn't really even talk about value a whole lot well in that case for example that is a stark landscape it's so dry yeah. it is so okay. bare that there's there's no the contrasts are pretty strong yeah. and it's pretty stark Whereas when you go into something more, and I did a lot of subtle work when I was a lot younger as an artist, I must admit. But because when you're dividing up your color values, when you're looking at reducing your palette, you're going to make some pretty strong decisions about the strength of what you're doing and, and the way it and relate, relates to the actual subject itself. So mm -hmm. I've become pretty ruthless as I got older in in what I do. But that doesn't mean to say that I don't appreciate subtleties because when I was drawing with graphite pencil in my early years, I was very interested in the the uh, shadows themselves, knowing for well that shadows aren't black, for example, and right. that there were primary, secondary and tertiary shadows in what I was looking at. So the more yeah. I studied, the more subtleties I saw, so as you walked away from something, it looked really dark. As you got closer, it broke up. You could see the bits and pieces, and you could yeah. see within the shadows itself things just quietly sitting there. Stones are good. I love stones. I've been, mm -hmm. uh, I've done a lot of stone work over the years, and that's the same. But as I as I'm getting older now, I'm more interested in the hard edged approach, which I did a lot in painting and art school. I must admit, Mm -hmm. uh, I was a very hard-edged painter when I came out. And then for a number of years, I went soft. I did the blurry edges bit. I've been through all of that. That sells. Soft edges, misty areas of yep. mystery, as I call them, are great sellers. But that wasn't me. I just wanted to go somewhere. I wanted to go and and, and be slightly graphic. Because I do. there's a graphic side to me. I do graphic work as well. A lot of Photoshop Oh, I can tell. Stuff. I mean, I'm looking at yeah. silence at the table. I mean, that is... That you talk about subtleties and you talk about very representational, that's exactly what that is. 
And it yeah. looks like a big departure from some of your other work. That was 2010. That won me 10 grand. At, uh, I won the City of Burnie Art Prize for that in open company. Oh, wow. I won a lot of prizes in open company. I, I enter against the oil painters and the acrylic painters where I can, where it allows me. Uh, uh-huh. And, yes, that, that was the period I was doing a lot of subtle with my pencil work. I okay. was doing a lot of investigation of, of shadows. Uh-huh. That place was really interesting. That door on that picture uh-huh. is well – it has graffiti – Farm yeah, see notes that. <laughs> from over well over a century on it. Oh, they wow. tell you how many bales of hay uh, they did, how many sheep they shot, all that sort of thing was That's all amazing. recorded. I wanted yeah. to take the door home when I on this property. I yeah. love the door. It was just <laughs> brilliant, and I just thought the door says everything. And inside that that room, I could only stay in that room for ten minutes because I get a bit of asthma from dust. I could mm. only spend no more than ten minutes in the room because the dust was so heavy. So gotcha. What had happened is. There was, it's a shearing shed, a shearing quarters, upstairs oh, for the okay. accommodation, downstairs for living. And this was the lounge room. And it had been left literally as it was when, when uh, the farm ceased to have use of those buildings. They were just yeah. left there. And it's just magnificent. And it's just, uh. I've even, I've done everything. I've even done, I, I won, I got an award with one from that, a room, uh, that building, right? So I called it stained glass, natural <laughs> stained glass. I called it, <laughs> and I got an award with it. I put, I did it in pencil, and was looking. I looked through the landscape from the inside of the window with all the bird droppings all over it. And, yeah, and it was again. It, it was a whole new world, and it just it was it was a moment in time was captured, and and that door was the same. It's just so. It, it I was actually so moved by that place. I had to go out a few times to get fresh air. <laughs> but yeah. I've spent a lot of time documenting. I've even had an art class out there uh, showing oh, wow. people what to look at. And it was It's it's not far from my place. It's only about a 40-minute drive. It's still there. But, I uh, think it's brilliant yeah. that you put your signature as part of that graffiti on that door as well. That's the way it appears anyway. <laughs> yeah. that, is, that is amazing. That's yeah. so neat. Yeah. Talk about subtle. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> So what is your influence for works like uh, The Heat Is On? Is that when you were just um, sweltering in the tropics there or something? No, or no, that- that's Tasmanian. Yeah. No, it's – it's. Oh, uh, okay. I'm, I'm very um, concerned about climate change here in Tasmania. Oh, gotcha. And okay. I was looking at what's happened now in Tasmania in that particular area. They're starting to bring irrigation into from, from the highlands, from the lakes, particularly called Arthur's Lake, they're bringing the water down to help the farmers. And because the climate's changing in Tasmania, we are now growing things commercially we've never grown before. So things Mm -hmm. are moving down from the mainland to grow here. Uh, And what worries me is that the impact that this is having, it's changing the nature of the landscape itself. What it was Uh, is not what it is now. It's becoming something else. And we've still got the climate change deniers. We've got a lot of people who are very pro-climate change but haven't got the political um, influence or the yep. money to drive it. So they're on the outer sometimes. It's starting right. to come around. It's starting to come around. But when I see these, the seasons that we've been having and the change of seasons, because we do have four distinct seasons in Tasmania, sometimes they start to uh, well together a little bit. And things 
happen when they shouldn't happen. And it's just getting a little bit more obvious that things aren't exactly what they used to be. So mm. farming has farming has done the right thing and I suppose in a way and has moved with the times to think, well, we can't do this, but we can do that. But we've got to improve yeah. our soil. We need water and water is a big issue. That area of Tasmania is extremely dry. It's always been extremely dry. The west coast of Tasmania is very wet, but the water doesn't, you know, they say, oh, why don't you pipe the water over from the west? It doesn't work like that. It's just too expensive. It's just an economic. Yeah. It's not feasible. So from up above the lakes, above the highlands, the water's coming out. But if it doesn't rain up there, you don't yeah. get enough water. So we've robbed one to pay the other. So it's a real dilemma. And yeah. so I find it a really interesting issue. And I've done quite a few on climate change. The way I no, see is that also yeah. the influence for that whole meal landscape northern Tasmania? No, no, the the whole meal. I've done a whole series on bread. I've done several exhibitions on bread. I've used. Oh, okay. I even got sponsored by a bakery who provided me with all the bread to actually <laughs> cut up and build. I drew from life. I actually I made uh, things out of bread. Oh, and okay. That particular piece was in the Glover Prize in 2009 if i remember rightly and ah. uh, that's the glover prize is one of australia's biggest landscape awards oh nice. and I've, I've been in that twice with with bread pieces and i looked at uh, the bread industry the, gr the grain of grain in tasmania when tasmania was settled in 1803 it grew the gra the wheat in Australia for the mainland until about 1827. All the bread flour came from Tasmania. But the climate and the weather got so wet and cold that they couldn't produce the 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 uh, hard the wheat that they wanted for bread. So the mm, wheat in mm -hmm. Tasmania became used for cakes and scones and they started growing wheat in New South Wales where it was a lot drier, but they were able to get the, the, the wheat to, to harden to get to the, the stage here where it could become a flour, which is superfine flour for use for bread. Mm. Funnily enough, in the last five years, they've developed, uh, the technology has developed now uh, strains of wheat grain, which mm. can be grown in Tasmania. And now yeah. we hold the record for the most wheat harvested per hectare in Australia. It's funny, it's gone the oh, other way. Kidding. It's starting to go the other way now. And that is going, something. It, it's just amazing. And we yeah. also hold the barley uh, one as well. Not we don't produce oh, well. a lot of it, but the rate of production per hectare uh, is yeah. improved because of genetic engineering, I know. But I wanted to have this link between the landscape and the wheat. So the wheat mm. comes from the landscape. And there's yeah. this relationship between the, they both need each other and we need the bread. So yeah. we're dependent upon the landscape producing this wheat. So we've got to look, in other words, look after our landscape to look after yeah. ourselves. So that started off a whole series of... That's very of, cool. To the point there, I was called the bread man in Launceston for a number of years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I did quite a lot. Um, of, I've got a number of pieces of work that I did, and I even built things out of bread. Like I made a waterfall uh, out of oh, bread, wow. you know, things like that. And it just, I played with loaves and cut them and moved them around and... Yeah, yeah, just just a just relationship. But our relationship with bread um, was that well, sculptor side of you coming out, yeah, like probably, some of that yeah, training yeah. that you had. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that so, was good fun. It still is. Yeah, I'll, mm. I'll bet that sounds like a lot of fun. I love just how thorough you are, and how all of the you know. You, I love the research element of 
uh, your artwork. Uh, I love that a lot. Uh, there's a lot of thought that goes into what you're doing. I love that. What I've, I've got a question. I, I guess maybe it's, um, probably been asked of you by others, probably. I don't know, but if, I mean, if you're having, um, some difficulties with arthritis, uh, is there, I mean, is, have you thought about switching mediums? I mean, would acrylic be something that is easier to handle or than a pencil? I don't know. I mean, I'm just wondering. I've been asked that, yes, quite a few times, and uh, that's been asked about the, about the painting, and you're probably right, yes. I just don't want to. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I'm a bit stubborn. I just enjoy what I'm doing. I've, I've got paints. I've got canvases. I think I've that's a prerequisite for colored pencil oh, artists. Yeah. Is to be bit. stubborn, <laughs> but it, but I like drawing on my computer, and I can use. I don't have to use I saw the some mouse. Of those. I, yeah. I can use my finger on the on the pad. I, I've actually. Yeah. Um, I used to teach computer art, so I'm fairly okay. conversant with that, and I'm finding yeah. that quite relaxing. And I haven't had any side effects. Touch wood. Yeah. Uh, from that at the moment, but yeah, it's just it's um, less toxic, of, right? <laughs> I'll go down fighting, in other words, uh, but. <laughs> I think, like anything you do, if you don't enjoy it, don't do it. Yeah, right, right. It, what it, program do you use on the iPad? Uh, I'm on. Uh, I, mean, I, I use. I'm, I'm mostly Photoshop, and I'm okay. working with a lot of my old drawings. I'm actually taking some of my coloured pencil drawings from the past and working through them and making them into taking them off in another direction. And sometimes, ah. sometimes it's not necessarily planned. I like mm -hmm. the spontaneity this time. Uh, sometimes uh -huh. um, I admire artists who can sit there and just do it. It just comes to them. But with me, I like to go out the back for <laughs> spend you know, a few days doing some research and going on a trip, yeah. coming back inspired and then setting it all out uh, and then getting into it. But after that, of course, the good thing about that is it's like putting, you know, when you um, do preserves, you preserve your fruit, fruit and vegetables for the winter, you go out in the winter time when you're not going out and you can pull these things out and there's stuff there for you to look at and to be inspired by. So if you do your research, you're putting stuff in the bank, sort of the creativity. Uh, the bank, bank of creativity is there when you have your days of what we call artist block. And you know what about artist right. block and what, what we do. And the more you try to do something when you don't want to do it or can't do it, it it's not going to happen. So you've got to walk away. And go off and do a bit of reading or a bit of research, and then you find something will gel. Yeah. Eventually, yeah. eventually. <laughs> right, right. So, unless it doesn't, right? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta so take what, up going. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you're not drawing as much. You're not creating art as much as you used to. What other, uh, do you have any other, hob what hobbies do you have other than art? Uh, photography is pretty strong. Okay. And my garden, we built a COVID garden. Um, we built a vegetable garden from scratch. And it's who's, rather, who's we? My wife and I, Val. And okay. And that's kept us going. And now we're about to build a big garden out there, a flower garden out the front of our house. So that's another project. Oh, have fun. I've, I do a lot of, I haven't done yet since I've come back from the mainland last, uh, uh -huh. 12 months ago. But I do a lot of fishing, particularly fly fishing. Um, oh, keen yeah. Fresh, freshwater fishermen. I've been freshwater oh, fishing. Very cool. Since 1959, I think it is. Yeah, oh, about 60-odd years. So, yeah, so I'm a very keen trout fisher. We have a really good wild trout fishery here in Tasmania. 
We oh, also have some cool. salmon as well now because we've got a huge salmon industry that that um, salmon farms. We've got some really big salmon farms here. Oh, how uh, fun! Worth 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 many many millions of dollars to the economy and uh, mm. and when they have an, I a, love an escape, the fish. I love uh, it. Oh, the fish is good. I I just love um love, I love catching them. I just I just like being out there and I oh, like yeah, the simplicity, simplicity of fly fishing. Just a a piece of line with a fly on the end and on it with a stick attached. And basically, that's what it. And uh, you stand there, sometimes fairly quietly. Uh, and you know, it just if it's on the dry fly, you're just waiting for that trout to slurp it yeah. down. Or oh, it's yeah. it's yeah, it's it's good fun. I haven't done it for. And I played a lot of golf, uh, but I haven't played golf for a number of years. Uh, and now I'm really hesitant to. I still got my golf clubs. Um, as the rule of thumb is, you, you know, you don't sell your wife, you sell your or you sell your fly rods or your golf clubs. Usually in that order, of course. You just that's the rule. You just don't sell. And so I've got all three. So yeah, you know, just a, I'm not letting them go. <laughs> do you uh, do you all have children and grandchildren? Or yes, we've got. Uh, I've got two girls from my first marriage, and my wife has two boys, and we have three grandsons from our girls at the moment. Wow, how fun! Yeah. Uh, okay, so. I wanted to ask you this: What so what art influences um, did you have like through the years? I mean, are, are there artists that you look up to that you really admire? Not in any particular order, um, but I was Miro and Clay, Jackson Pollock in particular. I've done a big study of Jackson Pollock. I've read uh, a lot about him and the yeah. American um, abstract. Expressness. Uh, yeah, I just, I'm just so uh, in awe of some of the the landscape. Oh, sorry, the the abstract painters in the fifties, particularly in sixties in America. They were a big influence in my art school days. Uh, to be honest, uh, I'm really keen. I'm just doing a study on J. S. Lowry at the moment. Uh, his work from England, the English painter, the industrial scenes. I, I really find his work quite moving. Mm. Lloyd Reese, probably my top Australian artist, who's just worked as he got older, he's losing his sight. His, his work took on another dimension, which I just found almost Turnerish in in mm. the way he uh, he saw and felt about the landscape. Fred Williams is a, a landscape painter in Australia, who I think is just his work is absolutely stunning, and I've. Got a lot of his work in in books, and I must admit his way of thinking has has had an influence on my work as well. They're, Interesting. I I I think the earlier Australian artists, uh, particularly in Tasmania, like Picanay and Streeton, uh, have again. I like. I just like looking at this work. I, I don't know sometimes whether I am influenced by the work. I just yeah. like the way they see things. Uh -huh. And having been to some of the places where they've painted particularly, it's nice to go back when you're looking back someday, you know, that maybe a hundred odd years ago, how they saw it, how you see it now. Yeah. They still haven't lost the essence of what they're looking at. It's some of the things, are, the characters are still there. The, the way they saw it then hasn't really changed with the way I'm seeing it now. 
In other words, the charm of the place is still there. No, because the, yeah. the structure's different and things come and go right, and, right. and landscapes change even with buildings up and down and all that right, sort of right. thing. But there, there's something about the way the Australian painters have captured the, the essence of the country we live in. And I've always admired that just simply the, the actual effort they went to paint. And a lot of this yeah. is plain air painting, you know, some yeah. back in the studio. Lloyd Reese was a really good example. He could work plain air and take his work back into the studio and finish it off. I had a really interesting experience with Lloyd Reese when I, in the, in the late eighties, I was in an art award in Launceston and he came to open it and he, I stood oh, wow. next to him and I was so overcome by his presence. I couldn't say anything to him and <laughs> it wasn't long after that he passed away. And I was oh. one of my biggest regrets in my life oh, that I just didn't bad. say. I admired him so much yeah. That, yeah. that I was just, yeah, shaking in my boots, you, basically. You know? Yeah. It, it's just one of oh, those things. An opportunity lost. An opportunity yeah, lost. Yeah, that's sad. Know? Oh. Yeah. And I'll go, yeah. I'll go to the National Gallery when I can, when COVID settles down, and I go yeah. to the National Gallery, and I'll just sit down in front of blue poles. And I like politics. When that was bought in 1975, I think, in Australia, thereabouts, it was so controversial. It was bought then by uh, Gough Whitlam, our then Prime Minister, a man who I really admire. And he had the, the, the uh, I suppose, the vision to buy something, which now worth so much more money they ever paid for it. But I will sit there and just look at it and look at it and look at it. And I just, I just go off on a trip and it's just, it's lovely mm -hmm. to see a piece of work done by an artist who's, who's not only ability but whose who's career and personality mm -hmm. I've studied at length just to see something he's actually done, just yeah. sit there. And it, it's very yeah. moving. It's oh, very moving. Yeah. Oh, that's, that, is so, that is so cool. Thanks for sharing that. So um, I, I want to ask you this. I, I ask every guest this. Um, what advice would you give to a new artist or someone who is uh, just starting out in colored pencil? What advice would you give that artist? Don't start with cheap materials. Mm. Start with decent pencils and decent paper. Look, you can start with decent paper. That's fine. Everybody has a, a budget, I know. And you'll go in and you can buy some work uh, materials from a particular country it's very cheap here in Australia. Right. And I remember, I remember, I digress, I had a class a few years back and I supplied, see, when I have my classes, I supply the pencils. I don't believe that people need to spend hundreds of dollars and buy sets of pencils to come. So I provide everything. This particular lady was looking at my pencils and she said, I bought the set the other day. Have a look at this one. And then, and then we picked up a pencil and I picked up the same colour. It was a, some sort of brown. Oh, I said, there, yeah, this set cost me... I think go for four dollars. Oh, okay. Let's have a look. And I put the pencil down there, and then I, I did a, made some marks on the paper. And then I took my pencil, did the same thing. I said, "Right, you'd have a go." And she, said, oh dear. And the pencil was worth <laughs> was worth then four dollars. Was then four dollars, and right. her set was worth four dollars. And right. she understood the difference between buying something that's cheap and nasty as against something that's. Exactly. And she was a beginner. And she went. She, and she never used her pencils again. She used all of mine. Yep. So put them away straight away, just to prove. So buy, yeah, buy the colours. Go and buy. Don't buy a set of pencils. Don't buy a set of pencils. 
Go to a store which sells decent pencils in loose form, and they are about, even even in Tasmania, we can do that, and most art shops ah, around the world. So buy them an open stock, huh? Yeah. And then buy some colours that you actually like. Don't worry about anything yeah. about rules, about you're going to have complementaries and primaries and secondaries and all of this. Just buy a few colours that you like. Buy a couple of pieces of paper. If you get them loose, if you get a small pad, try coloured paper. Don't just try white paper. Buy a pad. You can buy pads or little Canson pads, small Canson pads, say A5, right. with different colour paper. Just try them. Just just see how it goes. Yeah. First of all, play around with it. Don't try and produce uh, a, you know, a, a Picasso the first day that you're there. Just <laughs> simply play around with them and do something and have a look. And then as you get used to your pencils, then upgrade your set. Now, you may want to buy a full set sometime. That's fine. And another tip is when you do like your pencils and you need to buy extra stock never buy one of one color buy two mm. of one color because there's going to come a time when that color runs out and you're going yep. to be short and you won't have a pencil i always buy right. two of everything when i'm buying loose stock i always buy two then that's I can reorder. one of the best tips right there yeah i i totally am on board with that that's that's exactly right you will run but, out especially if you like the pencil yeah. <laughs> and it'd be uh, and i i I really have a thing against copying. Now, I know there's a lot of copying going on. I know we've got to try and do things. I'm vehemently opposed to tracing, and I'm vehemently opposed to buy, to getting uh, these reference-free, uh, royalty-free photos. And okay, I know so when you're talking about copying, what, what define copying for me here? Just putting tracing paper over the top and tracing out the lines oh, and gotcha. then putting the lines on paper and filling in the colours. Okay. You don't Why are you, you against can't that? learn to I draw... By uh -huh. tracing, I, I don't care. I've, I've even seen art teachers say you can't. You can't. The best way to draw is to draw plain air. Is to sit inside, draw objects. I don't care if you make mistakes, because you've got to go somewhere first. And if you go to a class, and you really need to go to classes. I mean, I was lucky. I went to art school. I had three years of solid teaching with some of the best tutors probably in Australia, and they pushed me. And and I, I I'm I'm grateful. And I, I every day I thank them for that. But at the time, I didn't realise it, of course, because you're a bit of an mm -hmm. ego when you're when you're young and you just you know you know everything. Now you yeah. realise you knew nothing, and so I always encourage people come and draw. Yeah, even my classes, and never ever compare yourself with somebody that's near you that's drawing. I'm not as good as that person, therefore I'm rubbish. You've got everybody has a way of seeing things. We see things differently. Picasso had a very different way of seeing things. To say Jackson Pollock had a very bad, from Michelangelo had a way of seeing things, right, and Leonardo right. and so forth. They're all different. They're all different. And that should be celebrated. Yes, proportion's important. And when you need to learn perspective, proportion and tone, balance in composition, and they will come with a bit of training. If you go to classes and get tutors to help you with that, yes, online stuff's good. There's nothing wrong with online stuff, but it's, you against screen, whereas when you're in a room with other people in a three-dimensional yep. setting, you get so much more feedback from other people as well as the tutor, and that's really yep. important. And don't, and don't aim to be, you know, I'm going to be Michelangelo or Leonardo t tomorrow. You're not. You're going to. It's going to take yep. you a long time to develop. It's just develop your own way of seeing. Some of my best students in school never drew realistically, but their work was just phenomenal. You could feel the tree standing mm -hmm. there was old and weathered and it had history. Mm -hmm. And they drew it in such a way it looked gnarly. 
I always remember those sort of things. It had character, it had age, it had mm -hmm. texture. It was saying, it was crying out to me, you know, look at me. And mm -hmm. I just thought, you've got it. You've, it's not cold. Yeah. It's not calculated. It's not there to the nth degree. And when we look yeah. at a wave, for example, rolling yeah. in on the beach, we don't see every drop of water. Right, right. If you, tra if you trace it, you will, of a photograph, you will see. Right, it's, right. It's, it's what we see in that moment it's, if we capture that makes us who we are. So be yeah. humble when you start drawing. Don't compare yourself with other people. And when you put yourself out in the public domain, be prepared for some most stupid comments you'll ever hear and don't take offence at them because people 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 don't like people saying, I remember one person I, when I was doing gallery duty one day, someone had painted uh, sheep blue. You don't paint sheep blue, this lady said. How ridiculous. And I'm thinking if you really read the artist statement, you might find out why they're blue. But just because they weren't what they thought they should be, they dismissed yeah. it as being rubbish. Right. What a put right. down. Oh, I love that advice. That's very, very good. I mean, and you talked about, um, you know, th this is something that I talk a lot about also is have a sketchbook and sketch from life as often as you can. That's how you're going to learn uh, perspective, but you're going to learn shape and, and form and all of that. You said you learned perspective by looking out the window and drawing. Yes. That's what you told yes, me. Yes, I looked at and at the, the basic principles, close, yeah. near, far. And that's right. how I started drawing. And that was reinforced to me in art school, that sort of thing. I didn't well, know sure. it was close, right. near, and far at the time. I just worked it out that, oh, that's the top end of my drawing. This is the bottom. It's in the middle. Yeah. Whereas you get someone like Van Gogh, for example, yeah. who took out, he had, he didn't have middle distance. He had close and far in his drawing. So he cut his drawing in half. So he mm -hmm. put what he saw in the foreground in the top, in the bottom half of the drawing and what he saw in the background in the top. So, when you look at his paintings, they go whoosh. They fly yeah. right off into the distance because he's missed the middle distance out. That was a really interesting technique. And which sometimes I've used to get a lot of feeling of, of extreme depth. But mm. it's, it's like, it's like anything. I think you, you've got to practice. And you said about the sketchbook, I have piles of sketchbooks, mm -hmm. not only for drawings, but I write. I write oh. a lot. Uh, if yeah. I have an idea, I write it down and. Usually I remember to date it, not all the time, but I write it down. So when I get back to it, you know, I've got I've got my says there's here's my book here at the moment, and I've just I've got notes and I'm going with images and so forth. That's full. It's got, <laughs> and I have one. Once that's full, I do another one. But I have sketchbooks, yeah. pile of sketchbooks, which I take with me. I draw on the plane. I do a lot of plane drawing. Not plane. Now, are you drawing plane. with uh, colored pencil? Or are you doing it with ink, or what are you doing? I do it with with a pen, usually with a, a okay. fine liner. I'll draw on the yep. plane. Uh, I've, I've actually done colored pencil drawing on the plane too. <laughs> I'll have a little set with me, and I do that, uh, just keeping ideas ticking over. And I also writing a lot. I do a lot of writing. Been trying to write a book that's stopped and started. I still I've got bits everywhere of that. And uh, oh, cool! What kind, what kind of book are you doing? I'm just doing a book about my work. I've been in a lot, okay. quite a few publications. I had yeah. a, a recent, or the other year, in Anne Kohlberg's Looking at Landscape. I had quite a big spread in that. That's, uh, I must be, oh, quite a lot of pages about how I particularly, and, and I uh, show an example, I have a, a strong love of tulip fields in Tasmania because mm. of their colour. And I've done. Yeah. I've had three exhibitions on it so far, 
and I've just done another series of works on that, another very simple stylized work looking at bands of colour on on tulip fields. Yeah. And that that became an article, quite a big article, and uh, it helped me. I think it helps you when you write about what you do. It helps you reinforce Mm -hmm. why you're doing it, and that's really important. Your res and death. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Awesome. Is your wife also an artist? No, my wife's very much in the craft. She's a very good embroiderer in uh, ah. ha- in hardanger and stump work uh, and quilt maker. Oh, wow. Card maker, uh, scrapbooking. She's into all those sort of things. At the moment, she's in, in doing embroidery, and she does 3D. Image. She's been doing 3D work from our trips, um, how she felt about um, our time in Cairns is, is and our time in Port Macquarie. She's got beautifully framed work with – so very three D, oh, wow. and yeah, I just yeah. admire that. It's another field altogether. But I just admire her, you yeah. know, that her hard anger. If she, she cannot be a single stitch out, if she is, she's got to unpick it all and start again. <laughs> you know, if she gets that wrong, and the discipline. It's the discipline yeah. I love. Oh yeah. Which again, you've got to have in art. You've got to have the discipline in art as well. Yeah. You've got to, you, you've got to keep going with what you're doing and pace yourself. Have a goal, and each day. If you're going to do a little bit, that's fine. The work I'm doing at the moment, for example, I'm having break from and doing something else, doing some computer work, but I'm getting – I know what I've got to do and I'm just waiting on going yep. back to do it again. But I'll see it through. And you've got to see things through. Uh-huh. Well, it sounds like you've been very, very disciplined. Uh, I mean, it sounds like you had a very disciplined studio practice where you drew so many days a week and then so many hours, I'm guessing, as well. You probably set yeah, some times for yourself. So what's what's um, ahead? What are you looking forward to in the future other than the digital paintings? What are you looking forward to in the next year or two or five or so? Uh, to keep having show, uh, exhibitions, I'd like to do that. I'd like to get back okay. to the mainland, particularly to the tropics, to do some work. I'd like to see where the computer art takes me. I'm not sure where I'm going to head with the colored pencil work at the moment. I'm still doing it, and I want to. I want to get back to teaching. I've already had an offer to do a, a workshop. I've been very hesitant with COVID to do any workshops at all. Like a lot of people, uh-huh. I've been. You know, we we haven't got any anywhere like as bad as you have over there. Uh, it's it's relatively very stable here in Tasmania. Yeah, but there's always the threat uh, right. of right. complacency will lead to something nasty. So we just right. got to be very careful with with the. Uh, the way we rig our arch. There are very few art workshops. There are art workshops going on here in Tasmania, but they're limited at the moment. And I'm, I'm just, uh, just not sure about that. But I've really enjoyed my yeah. teaching. I mean, especially on the Australian mainland, teaching pencil in the tropics is just wow. wonderful. Watching the pencil come off like paint, literally come off like paint on the paper because mm. it's so hot. It's just mm. brilliant. Ah, oh, and I look, you know, I, I miss that. And it's probably going to be a couple of years before we can get back and do that sort of thing. Uh, I have brought a number of large canvases to do some painting, but at the moment I just uh, I just got a few things unresolved in my. Yeah, uh, I, I'm doing a, a project at the moment where I'm involving my computer art and my coloured pencils, large format work. I'm looking at the marks made by the Australian scribbly gum moth. You want to look that mm. one up? That's interesting. It lay, it draws on trees. You should mm. have a look at this. Look up scribbly gum and moth and see what it does. You'll understand what I'm. And if you looked at my Instagram, some of my oh, from a few weeks back, I have actually have works up there that I've been doing 
the relationship between the scribbly gum and landscape art mm-hmm. is uh, is almost scary. That's how mm. close it is, and and it's nature's artist at work, and nobody really knows where the scribbly gum goes once it hands out, once once it hatches as a moth, and then comes back and lays dead. But to see what the scribbly gum does in its life cycle, you'd be fascinated by it. You should look it up. Oh wow! And this is what's fascinated me, and that's and I'm trying to bring that into my computer art and my colour pencil yeah. art at the moment as well. And I've uh, I've had some success so far with that, and and it's it, that to me is my latest project, which. I want to sort of um, develop, and I'm not sure where it's going to go, but that doesn't oh, matter. Cool. The fact that it's going, that's good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I'm. I'll have to see uh, if I'm following you on Instagram. If I'm not, I'm going to have to do that. Ha- that's so hashtag cool. hashtag Art Clicko. <laughs> okay, well maybe I am. I'll have to, I'll have to look and see. Very cool. Yeah. Thanks for telling me about that. That is it's awesome. Well, hey, you know, Richard, I could talk to you all night. I, I know I could. I could listen to you all night. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I really could. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Is there anything we didn't cover that you're thinking, my goodness, how come he didn't ask that? <laughs> um, my blog is going well. I haven't written a lot of my blog for – I've had a break because of COVID and, and just moving. I moved. We were living on the mainland for four years. We moved back to Tasmania getting a last year, and I had to emotionally get myself back into – because we were leaving the state. We'd left the state in 2017 to live in Cairns. So oh, okay. basically moved at least our home, thank goodness we didn't sell at least our home, put a lot of stuff in storage, went off to live in Cairns, found after 12 months, we've, we've lived there before, but we just, it wasn't right. So we moved back down the coast, went to Port Macquarie, which is halfway between Tasmania, Launceston and Cairns, exactly halfway, basically. Uh-huh. So we lived there for three years, and it wasn't right again. So we came back. Uh, but my blog has been, uh, I've, I've enjoyed my blog. My, I've been blogging since 2008. I've had 1.1 million hits on it. So it's been doing all right. It's ranked number 12 in the world's top 25 colored pencil blogs. Oh, and, wow. And, Very and, cool. Yeah. And I, I get a lot of letters. I get a lot of emails and, and I, nice. I'm quite happy to give advice. If people ask for some, you know, some particular advice, you know, it's, it's a non-profit. There's not, there's no money involved. And I'm just yeah. happy to share with people. And it's very that's been, cool. I think blogs are very good for the blogger more so than yeah. the, the, the bloggies or whatever <laughs> who, <Yeah. laughs> who read it because it helps me sort myself out. With yeah. Work, yeah. And I enjoy it. Yeah. That. If, uh, if you're a writer at all, then a blog is a great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very cool. So we will link that up in the show notes, guys. Uh, be sure and check that out. Well, Richard, this has been so much fun talking to you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, John, and uh, good luck with your work. I think what you're doing is marvellous, and I think it's needed. And I just hope that more colour pencil artists here in Australia get to get on with your what you're doing and link up with with uh, what you've got to share because I think it's really valuable. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm wanting to interview every colored pencil artists that that i can um that's um I, there's probably not enough lifetime in me to uh, left to be able to do that but <laughs> it's kind of a goal <laughs> you've got to have goals it doesn't matter how how yeah, the goal right. is you just eat away at it quietly piece by piece no, yeah Good on you. that's right all right guys uh all the right. show notes will be over there at sharpenedartist.com slash podcast go over there and check it out we'll have some of richard's artwork over there of course and, uh, you know, look at his website. I mean, this is, uh, it's fascinating. You, you see some cohesiveness 
in his work, but you also see some departures here and there. But just hearing him talk about his thought process, I think, is uh, quite fascinating. So uh, this is a weekly show. If you've not done this lately, I would appreciate if you're enjoying the show, leaving a rating and or a review over on Apple Podcasts. It would mean a lot to me. And I will talk to you again next week. And until then, take care and stay sharp. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. All the show notes can be found at www.sharpenedartist.com.